So the lecture you're about to hear is Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology, taught by me, Dr. Dave Broadback, here at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Uh, this is for the fall term in 2022. I had to think about that. I just recorded this intro and said 2023, which is wrong. And then I dropped an F-bomb and uh, probably not the best thing to do to start. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy it. hope you get something out of it. And if you don't, well, that's on you completely. A kid. All right, so uh, today what we're going to do is we'll finish up the stuff on genetics and then we'll move on to sensation perception, um, which is where I want to be. So last time we ended up by talking about the various different uh, mutations of Drosophila, the point mutations, meaning they're usually just a single base pair that's changed, and that affects behavior. So I guess a really good question is why are there different alleles? Right? I mean, it's kind of weird because you would think, I think naively, but you might think, you might think that once evolution has figured something out, right, they figured something out that's clearly shorthand, that means that selection has happened and things get, quote, optimized. It doesn't quite work that way, right? So, on the surface, like I said, it's, it seems if some allele is better than another, why doesn't it just replace all the other alleles in a population? Like it really ought to when you, when you think about it at first. So the first thing, that's one of the first issues that comes up. The second issue that often happens, you'll hear often, is that people say, aren't some alleles neutral? In other words, this one and this one are functionally the same. They accomplish the same amount. They affect fitness basically the same amount. So they're neutral. Right? Or this one doesn't affect fitness at all. So in that case, too. So maybe you have a couple that are the same. They have no different effect on fitness. Or, or they're just alleles that don't matter. And probably, though, don't matter in a very, in the small scale of within a lifetime, sure. In the large scale of evolutionary time, very, very, very small amount can make a difference. Right? So here's some possible reasons why both of these things, but to answer both of these concerns or questions. The first one is environmental fluctuation. So the environment changes, as we've seen in the last 10 years. Um, if you look over the last you know, 40, 50 years, the average, maybe the scale a little larger, the average temperature in this part of the world has gone up a little over a degree Celsius. That's a lot. That's a lot. So the environment changes, and even if it's not because humans are wrecking it, the environment changes over time. We just help accelerate and make it worse. <laughs> but, the point is that it does change, you know, things like ice ages, things like warmings, uh, environmental things like the, just the atmosphere, the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. Things like pathogens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pathogens are, that's a great example, like you could have, well, for example, I don't know, maybe a, a, a coronavirus just showing up out of nowhere and killing lots of people and other animals. Yeah. 
So all of these things, anything that isn't from the animal is considered the environment. That's you got to remember that. that when I, when I, we tend to think of in popular parlance, the environment is what? It's outside. It's where the grass and the trees are. And the bugs and the lions. I don't know why I picked lions. Not a lot of lions around here. But that environment changes over time. Now, what would be a good protection there? Well, maybe to have different versions of genes, different alleles. Because if it changes, maybe the new thing you're going to have or that you had in the past, you, the, the evolution can't see into the future, but in the past, maybe it was useful to suddenly have allele X, Y, or Z. We talked the other day about skin color, right? And how it, it means one thing, it means the color of your skin. But it's pretty much genetically determined though the environment plays certainly a role here. Uh, but it's also the case that the only reason that we have white people, frankly, is that there was a mutation and there's a whole lot less melanin. Not less like I have, but less like than the rest of it. And that was a very small positive thing. But it was enough over generations. The first people that were in Europe were black people, who weren't white people, because there weren't any white people. Right. Don't ever let anybody say, well, that means because they're more recent, they're more evolved. Whenever anybody says more evolved, you have my permission to punch them in the face. You can say it's from me. That's just not how it works. There's no goal, so you can't be more or less of a thing. We sometimes use that as shorthand among each other, but we all know what we're talking about. But when you get out into the world, don't say that, because it doesn't actually mean that. So the environment fluctuates. Think about something we have a very stable environment. What's the most stable possible environment? A desert. It doesn't rain. Antarctica is one. Southwestern United States is a great one. Antarctica is good, except that there's not a whole lot of animals there that I can use as examples. <laughs> Whereas the southwestern United States, I can. There's an animal called the Arizona whiptail lizard. The Arizona whiptail lizard is a fascinating animal because it's, it's, it's a, of course, a vertebrate, it's a lizard, but it's, it doesn't reproduce sexually, it reproduces asexually. There are no males. Females have, they lay eggs that are not, they aren't haploid, they're diploid eggs. The eggs are clones of her. So they're all her daughters and her sisters and her. That's great if, if everything's working fine. Think about it. If you're in a very stable place, actually that is good because you know all of your genes are getting passed on, not just half of them. And by the way, we know that the Arizona whiptail lizard evolved from a sexually reproducing species. And the reason we know that is because when Arizona whiptail lizards go to lay an egg, uh, two females mate. They don't pass any genetic material between the two of them. Just one female mounts the other one, and they both go lay eggs. Wow. So we know in that case they evolved from a sexual, uh, sexually reproducing species. But imagine the advantage of making complete copies of yourself. Pretty great if you have an extremely stable environment. There are a whole lot of those. Antarctica will be another. Southwestern US is extremely dry. It doesn't rain. 
20 years and no one will be living in Arizona or Nevada. Or is it Nevada? Nevada. Say Nevada. And it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to be living there. <laughs> a lot of times you get what's called heterozygote, or zygote rather, superior. And you guys, you and I were talking about this after class the other day. Because you asked about single cell disease, which is a fascinating topic. Because, and this happens, tends to happen in black African populations. It's about the only set of people it happens in. And whenever you get something that happens in one population of people, you wonder what's in their environment that made some, if it's a genetic disorder, that, that, made, that that's selected for that disorder. Because you're thinking, well, how did disorders get selected for? Aha, here's how. Let me draw a quick little picture here. I don't have space on the screen. I think I did. Okay. So normally, let's make this in red because we're going to be talking about red blood cell. So normally, probably everybody in this room, I'm guessing, has red blood cells that look like this. They look like little circles. Well, more like little donuts. You probably know that. Right. They carry oxygen. Now, if you have a recessive, two, two recessive genes, you're going to end up with, for, for this disorder, you end up with a blood cell that looks more like that. So it's kind of sickle shaped. You can guess that that thing breaks pretty easily. You do. They're not very stable. So you're thinking, well, why, do, why is that a problem in black African populations? What would have selected for this? This kills people. You get sick, and you can get very sick very quickly, and it's horrible. And it's, it's a real proper thing to be concerned about, and sometimes you'll even still see PSAs on TV, ads, collecting money, et cetera. However, if you have the alternate form more like that, if you've got one allele for the sickle cell and one for what we would in genetics call the wild type, you don't want to call it normal if you want to call it that, you end up with this. Maybe that's good. Turns out that's this shape of this sort of... I'm not a very good artist. My wife's an actual visual artist. My sister is a commercial artist. My brother is a Grammy-nominated record producer. This is my art. It isn't very good. But if you have this form, one at the bottom there, um, you're resistant to malaria. And that only comes if you have one allele from, I don't know what letters they typically use, but I'm going to go with B for blood. Let's go with B for blood. There we go. If you've got this, well, that's one. Right there, big B, big B. You get little B, little B. You get that. But if you've got this, big B, little B, you get that. You get resistant to malaria. And that's why that disease exists. Now you might say, well, yeah, but they can treat malaria. Yeah. Yeah, last oh, 800 years, people pretty much figured out how to treat malaria. Yeah, okay, 80, 100 years. Uh, let's see, how long have been anatomically modern humans? About 250,000 years. So that's longer. <laughs> so 
This is why the, this is called heterozygote superiority, being typically having two different alleles, not typically, often, typically it's not quite sure, often having two different alleles has an advantage. That's not a pure dominance recessive relationship, it's partial dominance, and it just makes it shaped. It's not quite as oblong, I'm thinking it's more like round with a little cut out of it. That's pretty cool, right? Questions about that? So oftentimes it makes sense to have different, to have two different alleles. There's also something called frequency-dependent selection. Frequency-dependent selection happens if you have a if you have something that's rare, and it's only advantageous if it's rare. If it's common, it stops being advantageous. So then you'd have two versions: the common version and the rare version. Example: There are fish who there are males, there are females, sure, and there are also males that imitate females. So they swim around there with the females. They are colored like females. They behave like females. They look like females. Except they're males. They're getting in what we like, their, their sort of sneak, sneak mating population, uh, sorry, sneak mating um, opportunities. So what happens is the females, because it's external, external fertilization, the, the, the females release their eggs, and then these, uh, these males that are swimming around the females just release sperm on these eggs and swim away. So at this point, see, the thing is you have to understand that typically females do the choice in mating. Females make choices, males don't. The choice, males are less choosy. This is especially true in internal fertilization of a human, but even in external fertilization. So usually a female will lay her eggs for a male that she's met. She's chosen that male. Not in this case. Maybe she's chosen a male, but then her, what she thinks is her sister sneaks up and puts sperm all over those eggs. And then swims away going, ah. You can see how if this was all males, it would work because the females would detect it and it would disappear. It has to be an extremely small number, so small that the, 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 the female fish don't even evolutionarily worry about it. It's rare, but it happens. One of those things. Okay. So that's frequency-dependent selection. So sometimes it makes sense if you have a very small number. Or think of a whole population that always fights over resources. So a very violent set of whatever the animals. And I run into you, and we fight. And there's going to be, one of us is going to win, and one of us is going to be hurt. What if instead of that, I go, no, take this one. Well, it's not going to work if we, it's got to be a very small number, because if it gets any bigger, then we're all just going to keep sort of doing that with each other. So these kind of things, frequency-dependent selection happens too. And of course, just general mutation. So why are there two different alleles? Well, one's a bad copy. They're just bad copies. They're copies, right? Alleles are just copies of, they're copies of copies of copies of copies. And if you've ever copied a whole lot of files over the years, now and then things degrade. There's literally a phenomenon called bit rot, where eventually if you copy a file enough times, a mistake is made. And if 
you're not, none of you are probably old enough to have ever used a VCR. You, but if you tape off a tape off a tape, you almost can't see it after three or four copies. Same sort of idea here. So you, it could just be a new mutation. And again, new is pretty evolutionary time in a human. I think I said the other day, I don't know if it was, I was when I was talking to you guys after class or when I was talking to all of you, but something like lactose, the, the ability to um, metabolize the sugar lactose as an adult, that's an extremely recent human innovation. We only started doing that about 2,500 years ago, which is nothing. And it's in different subpopulations too, which is cool because it shows that there are certain populations of people who live with cows. Um, what do I mean when I say there's a gene for behavior? And again, when I say that something is genetic or is environmental, understand that I know that there's an interaction going on. So among us, we can say something is genetically caused. But what we mean is that the behavioral difference, is it caused by the genetic difference? It means it's more of a statistical concept. It's more that variance in behavior, because we're just going to be interested in behavior and cognition, is correlated with a variance in the genome. So I think I've used the example before. If I said uh, height is 0.8, it's heritable 0.8, that doesn't mean that all the way up to my neck I got from my genes and from here up I got from my parents. It doesn't work like that. Or sorry, this here up is the environment. So we don't necessarily mean that a, a complex behavioral sequence is directly caused by a single gene or even a group of genes. Usually it's a lot of genes being turned on and off by various environmental factors to the point where it gets kind of silly to talk about how much is genetic, how much is the environment. But some difference has to be caused by or overlap with genetic differences. Just because something has a genetic basis doesn't mean it's unchangeable. So something can be purely 100% of a genetic basis. One of my, like a great example here is a disease. Oops, yeah, I'm gonna leave that there. Genotype does not mean, that's a good place to put that. The disease, uh, genetic disorder, PKU. Now PKU is a disease that used to be the number one cause of developmental delays in in North America, in Western Europe, in the world. And now it doesn't. In, in North America, in and in, in basically in all of the Western world, this is not a problem. Oh, the people still have this? Uh-huh. Guarantee you that somebody in this room knows someone with PKU. It's not the kind of thing you talk about because you know what? It's not like it's a horrible private thing. It's just, it's all controllable with diet. Used to be that if though if you had if you have PKU and you eat certain foods, this can cause this can basically uh, cause significant brain damage. So in Canada, for example, when you're born, you're given a blood test. So you watch your kid. One of the first things your kid has happens to your kid is they they get poked in the foot and they take blood. And then within, an hour, within the day, they almost always say everything's fine, but sometimes they'll say, your kid has a thing called PKU. Here are the foods your child can never eat. Next. And now, this is like the effects are, are, are changeable completely by the environment, and it is 
This is not something that's mediated at all by the environment. This is a 1.0 heritability. So just because someone says something has a genetic basis at all, and there's any genetic variance that, is accounted, that accounts for behavioral variance, doesn't necessarily mean it's unchangeable. And that's a really important point and something that's, all, that's very often missed by people, especially people who don't take a class like this. Now, not everything is one of these what are called facultative traits. So this is, again, this trait is... If a trait is facultative, it means it can be changed. The effects of it are changed by the environment easily. Hair color is a good one. You can dye your hair. <laughs> it's, it's, it's done. Eye color, easy. Wear, wear contact lenses. Is it permanent? No, but it still is changing the trait. Something's a little harder. Height is another great example. Uh, and there's sort of weird experiments in nature that have happened over the years. So when you look at the height of the average Japanese person before World War II and after World War II, they're about eight centimeters taller after World War II. Better nutrition. It's that simple. To give people more food early on, they grow taller. Wow. Right, questions on that stuff before we move on to talk about sensation perception? Can you explain facultative? Facultative trait? Yeah, it's just some, it's a, it's a trait that is easily affected. Well, the amount, yeah, let's go with that. It's easily affected by environmental fluctuation. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, other things about this? Anything good? All right. So that one's done. Let's talk about sensation perception. So let's pull that one up. Let's find our best player here. Sensation perception. Hey, look, it's right here. We'll do that today, then next time we'll do consciousness totally back on track, everything's good. This is a bit of a quicker one anyway. A lot of the reason this is a bit of a quicker one is this is, until we get to the end, this is going to be basically review of stuff you've done. So, if you're going to catch a ball, you see it coming. Perhaps hear it. I don't know. Have you ever seen that show C on Apple TV where everybody's gone blind in the world and they all fight with swords except they're all blind? Yeah, it's awesome. Just Jason Momoa killing guys with swords. He's blind. I figured I would be like a superhero if I was there. So, if we're going to do that, we have to figure out when to stick our hand out to catch the ball. And if you're doing anything that involves any quick decision making on motor things, like say playing any game, any sport, the amount of really quick math your nervous system has to do is fascinating. Think about catching a ball. Like I have an example here. You've got to know when to put your baseball glove up to catch the ball. So let's think about baseball when it be beach. Or you think about hitting a baseball. You're standing, so 60 feet, what, about 20 meters? About 20 meters from another person. They're throwing a thing this big at you, 60 kilometers an hour, or sorry, 160 kilometers an hour, perhaps. And let's just pretend it's only a fastball. There's no curves. There's no, there's no sinker. No split, split seam stuff. No screwball. It's just coming straight. 
your nervous system has to decide where and when to swing a bat before the ball leaves his hand. Because when the ball leaves his hand, it's going to be there in a second. One of the fastest pitchers ever, Nolan Ryan, who could throw a ball at 103 miles an hour, since so about 168 kilometers an hour. And an umpire famously said once, when he pitched me through a ball, he just said, sounds low. And the batter turned around and said, it sounds low? He said, I can't see it. It sounds low. Nolan Ryan was an amazing ball player. Now, to make those decisions, you have to not only do all that calculation to know when to swing your bat or stick your glove out, you have to get the external internal. There's a ball that's actually there, and it has to somehow, you have, your nervous system has to learn how to represent, or not learn, just has to represent where the ball is, and that it's moving, right? You have to get the external internal. That's in essence what sensation is, and then perception is going to be imposing organization on what you sense, right? So we can talk about bottom-up versus top-down processing generally. Bottom-up means it's going from the external to the internal, so that's sensation, and then imposing that organization on it, knowing that's a ball, that's perception, okay? So again, this is stuff I'm sure we ran into an intro. Some basic principles. Um, our first one here is going to be thresholds. We sense some things and we, sen we don't sense others. There's a whole world that we aren't experiencing. There are sounds that are so low we can't hear them. There are sounds that are so high. That's how those, well, you think about it, you know, there's those, those, those uh, yeah, not so popular anymore, but about maybe 10 years ago, there, there was stuff about certain businesses putting out these speakers that would play ultrasound, would play sounds around 20,000 hertz, just an annoying except really, really high. And people over about 25 can't hear it. It's too high. But you know what that does? It keeps teenagers away from the pain or from the front of your store. They still do that in Japan. It's, yeah, there's a few places they still do it. I've heard that there are certain places where they say, eh, I don't think like the legality of that. Of course, but yeah, I've heard that it's uh, Japan, I've heard China, I've heard a lot of places in the world, not in the States, Canada, UK. I don't know about the legal aspect of this stuff anymore. But if you, you, you can find, there are websites where you can just find out, oh, can you hear this? And you keep going, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Oh, I don't hear a damn thing, it's gone. There's a whole world out there we don't hear, we don't see, whatever. So the faintest stimulus we heard, we, we, let's, let's go with brightness. The faintest stimulus you can see, that's your absolute lower threshold vision, and the upper threshold is the brightest. And after that, you don't see anything that's so bright that your eyes just make this work. Doesn't make as much sense there. You can talk about color, though. The color. The wavelength of the color that we see, the sort of lowest wavelength is red and the upper wavelength is violet. But that's the violet, you can't see it. You can detect it, it's actually there. You can detect it with your skin, you get sunburns from it. For example. And then there are different thresholds, those are the proportions. So if you've got two stimuli and I ask you which one is easiest, 
I think the easiest explanation here or, or example is weight. So if I give you two weights, one that was one kilogram and one that was one kilogram, 1.5 kilograms, we could probably, oh yeah, that's heavier. And eventually you titrate that down, you get to the point where you're right half the time and wrong half the time. In other words, you're, it's random chance. You go, let's say it's 1.1 1 .1 kilos I don't, versus one. I'm not sure that's where you would be. But for illustrative purposes, we'll do. But it's not the 100 gram difference that matters. It's the proportion to the original stimulus. So it's one-tenth, 10%. So that means that you could detect the difference between 10 grams and 11 grams. Two grams and 2.2 grams. Always would be 10%. See, so they're, they're proportions called Weber's Law. So stimuli differ by a constant proportion to be determined to be different. That's what Weber's Law is. This holds true in every perceptual system and sensory system we have tested in every animal we have tested ever. There are not a lot of laws in psychology, not a lot of laws in biology, life sciences in general, because we aren't dealing with physics. But sometimes there are, and Weber's Law is one of them. It's true with everything from how, how you perceive time passing to uh, which, which of these stimuli is brighter than another, to which of these two stimuli, whether these two stimuli have a different color, to which of these two stimuli, is this stimulus a square or a circle? When does a square become a circle? When does a square become a rectangle? One of stuff. So one thing that often happens is when we sensorily, sensorily, I don't know how to work. We get used to something, sort of, but it's not quite that. You know, if you stopped your eyes from moving, which you can't, your eyes, eyes are always moving a little bit, mine are moving all the time, a whole bunch, but yours, even yours are moving a little tiny bit. What that prevents is constant stimulation on your retina, because if that happens, everything fades to gray. There's a way to do this at home, um, but be careful, you might hurt yourself, so. Not permanently, but I mean, I'm saying that if you did this and you hurt your eye socket, that's on you, not on me. But if you have a ping pong ball and you can cut it in half and then make sure the edges of it aren't really going to cut you because they can, so be careful. Cover your eye with the ping pong ball, and if you can put some Play-Doh, plasticine, anything around the edges that make it so it's completely light tight, okay? Just use the one eye. And then look straight at a, not a light that's gonna hurt your eye, but look straight, let's say, at a light like this. You'll get constant stimulation, as long as your head's still, you'll get constant stimulation. And what'll happen is everything will just fade away to gray. Because, your stimuli, or the stimuli will be the same. Is the phone ringing here? Because that's one. Oh, I so kind of feel like answering it. It's probably better. Pizza, pizza. Pizza house. So. Same thing happens if you uh, put, just, here, here's an easier one. The, the, the thing fading to gray is cool. That's, that's why I mentioned that, but you can work with just putting your hand, finger on your arm. Eventually, you'll feel it, you'll stop feeling it. How many of you have 
many of us here noticed that we're wearing socks? Uh, no, none of you did, right? So it's like that. This makes a great deal of evolutionary sense. Oh, there's not, there's a, there's, the stimulus is the same, and nothing bad is happening, nothing good is happening. Ignore it, right? So evolutionarily, this makes a great deal of sense. Ping pong ball trick. Ever notice how when everybody else's house smells weird, yours doesn't? Until you move away for school and then you go back home at Thanksgiving and go, God, that house smells weird. Does it always smell like this? It's just the way it is. You're used to it. You will notice if that projector fan went off, you would notice. It's like when the fridge is going, you know, like the condenser in your fridge is going at home and then it stops, that's when you notice it. It's like when your dad falls asleep watching TV and you pick up the clicker and change the channel. And he wakes up and goes, I was watching that! You go, Dad, you were not watching Blue's Clues. I guarantee you were not watching that. Or with my father, Dad, it's soccer. There's no way you were watching soccer. He didn't like soccer. Wild stuff. And, but it makes so much evolutionary sense. So much evolutionary sense, right? Okay. So let's talk about some of our systems. The one I think that's most interesting to humans is vision. We're such visual animals. So let's talk a bit about vision. So what we're doing here is we're converting light, electromagnetic radiation. We're converting to general energy. That's all that's happening here. Any sensory system is doing that. So it's light. And light is just a form. Light is a thing that we, we've given a very small slice of the electromagnetic spectrum, we give it the name light, because we can see it, okay? But so are x-rays, microwaves, and infrared, radiation, cosmic rays, and all kinds of other stuff. So in fact, if you look at it, you've probably seen a diagram like this in like high school or even elementary school science. Right? Look at this little tiny spectrum. We get into the spectrum here that we see. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, Roy G. Biv. I just stole this off the internet, and it clearly was something to do with radio frequencies that this person had, because that's why this is circled. I don't care. But you look at some of these. Down here, we've got AM radio, which I don't even know exists anymore. Is there still AM radio? FM radio and old TV. TV is now over here further because TV went digital. And you start over to bed, elect, uh, extremely low frequency. Here, anybody here ever served on a submarine? You're going to guess no. Okay, so unless you've served on a submarine, you've never used extremely low frequency radios. The nice thing is they'll travel around the world and they'll travel through water very easily. Or easy. Very easily, it's not quite really important, but it's they do. And then we've got all the various radio TV, and then we get to infrared. Uh, this guy, I don't know what he's doing. This says microwave oven, fine. Maybe he's microwave this. Is this a hot dog? Is that what he's got? But he's looking at fire. Oh, yeah, infrared. That's where that's below red is, is, is heat. He may also just be looking at this, be sort of creeping on the woman in the bikini. I think that's possible. 
And you, you horrible sexist pig. Um, but she's in. She's out here. Ultraviolet. We don't see ultraviolet. Some animals do. A lot of birds seem to be ultraviolet. You have to wait, what? Oh yeah. Black cat chickadees. Male and female look exactly the same to you and me. The black cat chickadees is a great big ultraviolet patch on the, on the males, right in their breast. It's a different color. It's a color you can't see. Which sounds like something you say when you're high, right? What if there are colors we can't see? There's lots of them. You just can't see them. The next time you're a little stoned, bring that up to somebody who'll freak them out. X-rays, which this is obviously something going to get for a dental x-ray, which I always figured the dental x-ray is just a way for me to charge more money to my insurance plan. And they cost it. Everything to the right of light is the bad stuff. This is dangerous. Okay, this is stuff that you, like it, it destroys uh, bonds in DNA and RNA molecules. That's why you have cancer. The stuff on this side, like Wi-Fi, which is Wi-Fi goes about here. Microwave ovens. They cannot give you cancer. If it was the case that microwaves gave people cancer, ever since the radio started, like Marconi should have died of some horrible cancer. So don't worry about the stuff on the left. Stuff on the right, you should worry about. That's why they always say, you know, you know you had the x-rays you had this year. Right, so whenever you have an x-ray at the dentist, or if you go to see an MD, I might have broke my leg. You had any x-rays, and I said, that eh, two years ago, no problem. If you've had like 20, they go, ah, okay. Well, let's do one more. But that'll be it for now, you know? So we see this narrow strip. So it must be something evolutionarily special about that strip of light, of, of magnetic, electromagnetic radiation to humans. So let's talk a little bit about humans. So the wavelength of the light determines the color of the human. And the intensity in term determines the brightness, okay? Yes, the things you know. We should all get on the same page. Light, light enters the eye through the cornea, and then the pupil, the cornea is the covering, the pupil is the hole, your eye hole. Sounds like something new from Apple. It's the new eye hole, you think you're gonna love it. It's $7,000. You have to buy an update every 30 minutes. Okay. The pupil size is regulated by the iris. That's the colored part of your eye. And behind the, 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 the pupil, there's a lens that accommodates, so it changes shape to focus, at least for you people. Not so much for me. Okay. So this light hits the retina, and then creates an image that is upside down. Doesn't matter that it's upside down, the brain writes it, so it's no big deal. So this is one of those things I'd give her, you've been tested on this in like grade 10 biology and in like intro psych. Like I'm not gonna ask you about this, but your visual acuity, so how clearly you see things, is affected by the shape of your eye. So if you're nearsighted, your eye's too long, which is kind of a weird thing. Anybody knows you're nearsighted, just start calling old, old long eyes. Um, 
or your cone cornea is too curved. But what happens when you're nearsighted is the image is in the wrong place. Same thing with farsighted. So far away stuff is blurry with nearsighted, and it switches around. So the image is either on the back of the retina or the front of the retina with nearsighted or farsighted. Okay, the, the best clear image. It's not that you see nothing because I, I know there must be people in here who are either near end or and or farsighted because I see people with glasses and those are the most common things wrong with people's eyes. But we can fix it. We just build glasses, right? Humans are awesome. So farsighted doesn't help. Okay. So that's all well and good. This is again stuff you've run into, but does anybody have questions? I know you've run into it before, but it doesn't mean you memorize things. Okay. So let's look at the retina itself. So we've got the retina, we've got the light, we've got light hitting these ganglion cells that are hooked up to either cones or rods. And one ganglion cell is hooked up to lots of cones, or it's hooked up to one rod. I'm sort of giving it around. I was, Jesus. The rods do brightness and nothing, excuse me, nothing else. The cones do color. And they're really only good in the day. And you should know this because at night you don't see the color. It feels like you do, but you don't. You're, it's like when you watch a TV program in black and white, which doesn't happen very often anymore. But I remember as a kid having a black and white TV and watching a hockey game, and it looked like Montreal had red sweaters on. I know they had gray, they did, but when my TV was gray color. Okay. So in the dark, and I know, yes, and you're saying, yeah, but when I look over at my clock or my phone, I can actually see, yes, because that's light coming right at you. Try getting dressed in the dark. See if you, if you have any t-shirts, for example, that are all different colors with just solid colored t-shirts, and then walk out into the hallway after you get dressed. And turn the light on and go, oh, that was not what I thought I was wearing. Right? Because you don't actually see in, see in color in the dark. So a photon, that's a piece of light, a packet of light, hits a receptor, it sends a message to the, by, the, by the optic nerve to the brain, blah, blah. So because of this, by the way, we have a blind spot. So the way that, again, this is probably stuff you know. But your retina, there we go. So you've got all these receptors, and they all have to hook up to something. And they hook up to the optic nerve, which is right in the middle. There's no receptors there. So you actually have a blind spot. Your brain fills it in. So you don't know you have a blind spot. You can, you can prove it. There's usually a demonstration in any good intro psych textbook. Or just look up um, blind spot demonstration uh, on Google and you'll find it. I don't mean the blind spot when you're driving kind of thing. I mean, like, literally there's no receptor so you can't see from that part of your eye. This is always one of the cases where when people say, you know, uh, intelligent design versus evolution, and I say, which, does that seem like intelligent design, having a place where you can't see on the thing that you're supposed to use to see? That seems kind of stupid to me. So are you saying the designer's stupid? Which usually upsets people, because usually I'm just going to get to upset people there. Okay. Big fan of the retina. So cones are for details and color. Oh, they're coming up on the side now, that's weird. <laughs> and cones, again, only really work in the, what the hell, they just turn the thing up? Yeah. 
I don't know where I am. Okay. Whoops. Back. There we go. I concentrated the fovea on all of you. I don't have a fovea because of the genetic disorder that I have. So the concentrated the fovea, which means your peripheral vision. And rods were evenly distributed. My cones and rods are evenly distributed. Yours aren't. Your cones are all in your folios. Now, that, because of that, that means your, your uh, peripheral vision is in black and white, which is something you can prove to yourself. Again, this is a little demonstration you can do. It usually takes a couple people. What you have to do is be in a dark room and have like points of light. It really works well if you have a couple of laser pointers. So and you have them off like 180 degrees from someone's head, maybe a green one or a red one, you, got, you usually get a couple of those. And then you have the person stare straight ahead. And the way you got them to stare straight ahead, there's a lot of things you can do. You can put another point of light there to have them stare at it. And then off to the side, they'll detect, every, they'll be right every time. Is there a light, yes or no? Every time. What color is it? You gotta make sure they don't look, look over it. It's very hard. We're literally hardwired to do this. We see what a stimulus is there. So you actually have to hold, Best if you hold your, cell, your chin like this, or maybe if you can get something that'll hold somebody like that, you'll be, at, you'll be right half the time with a red and green laser. In other words, you'll be at ready chance. I will get it 100%. This is my one superpower. The one thing I can do because of my stupid genetic disorder is I get my peripheral visions in color. Suck it, you losers. You can all drive cars. And I don't know, I'm not walking into stuff, but I can see in color in my periphery. So you guys all suck. This is not a superpower, <laughs> but it was a fun thing to do in a lab demonstration in a class once, so. A long time ago. Like when I was, we were doing this in a, in a class. Problem. Anybody want to do it? I'm like, oh, I want to do it. <laughs> this is going to be fun. You don't know that I've got this weird genetics over here. And I would do it, and you kept saying, are you cheating? I said, no. But I do, and I explained it. He said, well, then why? I said, because they're not fun. And sat back down. Many rods are hooked up to a bipolar cell. This isn't that important. The important thing is, when you see in black and white, it is much less detailed than when you see in color. Okay? All right. Oops, two things up. You have about 130 million receptors per retina, but, so you might say, well, that means we have 130 megapixel eyes. Uh, except because of you guys all having a fovea, um, it's more like about 600 megapixels. So you have 130 million receptors in each eye, but they're constant, yours are concentrated, most of them, in one place. Okay? This should tell you a little uh, thing about the nervous system in general. You must be reading the state of those receptors all at once. You have to. Because if you're reading them one after the other, it would take you like 30 days to recognize a red triangle. Right? So you're reading them all at once. Nervous systems are, par are, are, are parallel. It's kind of cool. It's not kind of cool. It's incredible. All right. So let's get the evolution. Why are we only sensitive to what we call visible light? 
But I mean, why evolutionarily? It's an excellent question. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to see infrared? Whenever Archer has to put the infrared goggles on and he gets all excited, Lana! see through walls. Dude. Because it's heat. Ultraviolet. Like, uh, changes the way it looks, changes how concentrated it is, depending upon your altitude. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder why birds see things that change their concentration based on altitude. Gee, why would that be? Maybe because they fly? You know, like, it's quite a lot easier to navigate when you can see, you can sense how high up you are. Pretty cool. But we don't see those things. So ultraviolet is affected by atmospheric conditions. Atmospheric conditions and altitude, yeah, that would be important for knowing about flying. It's not important to us. Not a whole lot of UV actually even reaches the ground, so it wouldn't be useful to humans at all to see it in the UV. So it's cool that UV and infrared things go through walls, but it wouldn't be useful for us. It wouldn't be useful to humans. First of all, in our evolutionary history, there haven't been walls for very long. been forests. In fact, we come originally from, we split off, us and the chimps split off yes, between five and seven million years ago. Probably from something that lived in trees. Almost certainly. The light that we do see has some really cool properties. So, and this is going to say, wait, this is how, yeah, that's fine, but different wavelengths are reflected by different objects. This is not brown, this It's reflecting light that's this color, that's that wavelength, but it's not inherently that color, whereas the, the, the light coming out of this fluorescent tube is inherently a color. A weird pinkish hue there, but that's fine. So light that comes from a light source has that property, but my, uh, my t-shirt, my blue t-shirt here, isn't actually blue, it's reflecting blue light from these lights. But now I can tell that this t-shirt is different than somebody else has to be wearing a t-shirt, so I can say it's a t-shirt. We have different t-shirts on. You can't just tell that because we're two different people. But even put our two t-shirts separately, you say, oh, that's, that's, that's one, that's the other. And we were wearing them, and you, or take two pictures, whatever. You can tell because they reflect different wavelengths of light. It's a way for us to determine what, which objects are different from each other. Right? determine when things are going to eat. We can eat plants when they're different colors. We eat. You typically wouldn't go, oh, let's, let's pretend we 
you're, you're out in the savannah of Africa and it's 10,000 years ago. So, they have a stretch for all of us, but let's pretend. You're walking along, you run into a plant you've never seen before. You don't want to probably eat too much of it because you're going to get sick. But if you have one plant that's got leaves that are green, another plant that's got leaves that are shriveled and brown, not even shriveled, just brown, you're going to eat the green ones. The green ones just sound more appetizing. They just are. We're built that way. Because they're green, we have, we're, we have evolved to like green colored leaves. Because they're healthy. I mentioned this just earlier, but I wouldn't put a blind spot in personally. I'd have it wired a little differently. Would you make only one pit of the uh, one bit of the pit? That's an interesting Freudian slip there. This fovea has a Latin word meaning pit. Would you would you make whenever why though when anybody says foveal pit, they're saying it's a pity pit. It's redundant. Fovea is a Latin word, it means pit. It's like when someone says synaptic gap. Synapse is a Greek word, it means gap. So you're saying, oh, it's the gap gap. It's up there with your, I gotta go to an ATM machine. Oh, an automatic teller machine machine? I'm sorry, some things bother me irrationally. Like I know it's irrational. Would you install the retina backwards? So would you put, would you put the receptors at the very back and they have to go through bipolar cells? These are all, it's like, these are really odd choices. Because eh, there's no choice being made because it's evolution. <laughs> okay, how would an eye evolve? Well, first of all, we should realize that it's happened about 60 times in, the, in evolutionary history, so obviously it's a solution to a real problem, and evolution just comes up with different solutions depending upon the species. So how do you get an eye? This is one of those questions, in fact, you'll hear a lot of people who are sort of on the creationist side of any of what they think is a debate. And they'll say, well, how would eyes come from? You say, it's easy. It's easy. I can, I can show you here. All right, so let's draw. So let's say you're an animal, and it's, I don't know, 400 million years ago. A long time. The sun rises and sets. It's always done that. I talked about circadian rhythms the other day. The animals begin to detect when the sun rises and falls is a good thing. Well, what do we do that as a type of light? So all you would need is some patch on your skin. And we're going to make that patch. We're going to make it a little bit light sensitive. And I'm going to put these little things here, little blue guys I'm drawing in. Those are just going to be light sensitive cells. That's all there. These can simply hook up to the animal's brain to wake it up when it gets light. Or put it to sleep when it gets light, depends on the animal. And in fact, there are uh, a lot of lizards to this day that still have, a lot of reptiles that still have on their back of their head, like sort of back here, a light sensitive patch that they don't see through. Okay. So that's all well and good. What would be a bit better than just detecting that light is there? What would the next step be? Any thoughts? 
Being able to figure out what the light represents. Yes, eventually. Let's let's let's, let's make it simpler. But you're right. Don't misunderstand me. What's what's even simpler than that? Light intensity. You can probably already do that with this because it's how quickly those cells fire. That's good too. I like differentiating wavelengths. Eh, why do we call it matter? Danger. Okay, you're detecting something. You're probably so detecting danger. That's good. You're all you're getting. You're all getting close. Again, we don't know this. This is what we think. Keep going. You're all coming up with great ideas. This is wonderful. If it's danger, Hunter, I think you're onto something. If it's danger, because then you want to leave. Like, yes. Close your eyes or save your senses. But where? I just gave the answer. You want to know where it is, oh. so you can run away uh, or hide. How do you know where something is? Depth perception. Yeah, let's go. We just got one eye. Let's just we have one eye. Don't don't overthink. Okay, you want to know what direction something comes from. So light's coming from different directions. Let's draw some light in our diagram. Okay, light coming from here, here, what's here, and there. But those cells just are on a flat. They can't detect what direction. What if, what if, what if instead that became a pit? So, so now instead of it just being now we can get direction because it's sort of a little pit. Not just a flat surface on the back of the animal, but it's a little pit. And because of that, if the light's coming, say, from the right, and it hits this receptor, we know it's over there. It's not going to hit that receptor, because it can't. So we can get a crude sense of direction. Or we can run away, or run too. Maybe it's from radiating as well. Why not? Well, if it's something like this, and Hunter, you mentioned protecting you probably want to put something over top of this. Probably just some skin. Maybe put some skin and have a little hole in it to focus the light. Not focus it so much as just have it go to one. You know how when you look, you look through, um, just do that even. No, I'm serious. It focuses light a little bit. Not a lot. But if you look through something that's long and thin, like, I don't know, a, a paper towel tube, it actually works. Not, it's not great, but it's better than not having a little, little hole, little slit, little tube. Now, what if instead, what if let's put a hole is kind of scary? We want a hole here, or just a little, little something on top of there. What about like something that's like clear skin and it can change shape? Oh, I've just invented the eye. That's how an eye would evolve. And it's happened, as I said, about 60 times in evolutionary history. So our eyes are different than, for example, insect eyes. Right? 
And we're, you know, insects, they got those big weird compound eyes, so it's like one big eye, but it's all kinds of other eyes. That's just one way to see direction. You know how we see direction? We move our heads or we move our eyes. Compound eyes are another solution to the same problem. This is how an eye could evolve, and probably how eyes did evolve, because we still actually see this kind of thing here. That actually still happens in evolution. Like, it's, it's still a real thing. I have a video I made a couple of years ago, and I'll throw it up on my website, on the post, the, the podcast post for this, that I made explaining this. Sort of narrowing through, so I'll throw that up as well. Any questions on that? So that's how an eye might evolve, and probably did evolve. Some other senses. Let's think about taste and smell. Smell is probably the oldest sense, the idea of a chemical sense. Every animal ever that's ever been studied has a chemical sense. Smell is just a chemical sense. It's detecting concentrations of chemicals that you are interested in. When I say interested, you either like them or hate them. They're either pleasant or unpleasant. Very rarely are there smells that you go, yeah, that's just a smell. <laughs> Uh, smells so old that it clearly predates, you know, every extant uh, animal. <laughs> Everything can smell in some way or another. It's just a chemical sense. Taste is also a chemical sense. So smell can be very good because it can help you detect food that's either good or bad. It can help you detect mates, whatever. Uh, but our, our, our smelling system's pretty good. With things that we can smell, there are things that are odorless. They're odorless to humans. They actually have an odor. We just don't have the gear, the receptors to detect them. So things like natural gas, we put the hydrogen sulfide smell in it. We put the rotten egg smell in, in, in natural gas, so you can smell a gas. Natural gas has no smell. Propane has no smell. We don't detect that naturally. Anyway, about one part per 10 billion is something that we can smell, we can smell. Now you look at like a hound dog, like a tracking dog, it's going to be one part per trillion. They're just better at it than we are. But one part per 10 billion is pretty impressive. Great example here of how we use this is you look at human body odor, how we smell and sweat. And as surprising as this tends to be when I tell people this, people tend to like smells of other people. We don't usually think that because we've, and this is fine by me by the way, I'm all for people wearing as much deodorant and using as much soap as possible. Don't misunderstand me. I draw the line at like Axe body spray. You ever been to a high school? Walk down a hallway? I swear you should be able to see the cloud of Axe body spray. And I see, especially young women laughing. Guys, women never found this attractive. I don't know what you were all thinking. There wasn't Axe body spray when I was a kid, so. Anyway. If you give people T-shirts 
from men or women. So what you want to use, or it can also be men uh, who are attracted to men, men who have sex with men, or women who have sex with women. So whatever you're attracted to. And you just say, so we get a bunch of people, we have them work out, they, they, they have a shower, but they don't use any soap, and then they work out in a fresh, clean t-shirt, and then you take the t-shirt and put it, seal it in the back. So they've sweated. And you say, you smell these t-shirts, and rate them on pleasantness, on pleasantness, and just put them in order. Great, all done. Now, here's some pictures of some people. It's the actual people that were wearing t-shirts. I would like you to rate these people on their attractiveness. And one of the things that we find is attractive in a face is symmetry. That's a human universal, by the way, no matter what your culture is. So I'm not talking about body shape or anything. I'm just talking about the looking at your face. And we tend to rate symmetrical faces more attractive than non-symmetrical faces. And then you put, this is the weird part, <laughs> you see this is going, and then you take a look at the body odor ratings and the symmetry of face ratings, the attractiveness of the faces, and they just line up almost perfectly. Now, I'm not suggesting when you go out and you meet somebody, you say, can I smell your armpits? Because I don't think you're gonna be meeting anybody interesting. Well, they'll be interesting. And after the police haul you away, So this is not a pickup line. Can I smell your armpits? Just to, I may not be. I may not have ever had very much success with women, except the one I met. I had a girlfriend, but not married. That was, that's it. But I know enough about women to say this. Walking up to one at a pub night in the speakeasy, say, "Can I just smell your armpits for a second? Is not the way to start that conversation. It's not as it's not as much of a cliche as what's your major. But it's grosser. But the weird thing is we actually, isn't this kind of wild? If we were using it as a signal, it's actually what's called an in animal behavior, we would call this an honest signal. And it's not like it's something where you can go, oh boy, never smell bad in here. I bet a lot of non-symmetrical people have been working out. No. <laughs> okay, so don't think like that. Question to that? Wild stuff, right? Oh, mothers recognize the smell of their own baby's poop. <sighs> Some of the things I can tell you, first of all, is, I don't know if anybody who's around kids or had kids, but uh, newborn baby's poop doesn't smell that bad. It literally doesn't, even when it's not your own baby. When it's your own baby, you just don't care. Right? Newborn baby's poop smells like um, kind of smells like caramelized sugar. Like it's, it's got a weird sweet smell to it, which is kind of disconcerting if you're not ready for it. Like it doesn't smell appetizing, don't misunderstand me. But you're, it's basically, you're just, it's, it's carbonized sugar. That's, that's what you get. So there's a reason it smells kind of sweet. But mothers, other words can smell it. You give them diapers, dirty diapers, they can pick out their own baby. Smells much more important to humans than we think it is. So, as far as taste goes, uh, the things we can taste. Salt, sweet, sour. 
Skinner, and MSG, Mun. So that's uh, just another taste. Umami, it's a Japanese word, it means flavor. Let's see, your brain needs salt to run, so does your whole body, so that, that's good that we can detect that. Hey, sugar, you think that might be important for your body to run, considering the amount of glucose you need for your, yeah, that's important. So those are two things you're gonna like. You're gonna like salt, you're gonna like sweet. And the reason is it makes complete evolutionary sense because your body needs sugar and salt to run. You know, sour. Things that are sour tend to actually be things that are corrosive. Or in other words, things that are really corrosive you detect as being sour, they're unpleasant. So, hit me. As an adult, we learn, we, we, we can compare, we can pair flavors with each other and get interesting combinations and all that stuff. So maybe you like things that are sour. But take some vinegar, put it on your finger, and if you've got a newborn baby or you've got a little brother or sister or cousin, a little bit of vinegar on your finger, put it in their mouth. You don't shove it down, gently. Just touch their lips to it. And you'll get exactly, you'll pull down my mask to show you what they do. It's called a disgust reaction. And literally scrunching up the face, pushing it out with your tongue, and that again is a cultural universal. Things that we detect as being bitter tend to be poison. You say, wait, what, Dave, I like bitter things? Yeah, but not in the quantities. Like, we like bitter on some level, but uh, very often things that are bitter on enough of a quantity, they, they're, they're poisons. But herbs are like that. Why do we like MSG? A lot of sodium glutamate, a lot of so sodium, oh sodium. We need sodium also for every answer, right? And then the glutamate, free glutamate molecule, the salt of glutamate, a lot of sodium glutamate. Did you know that glutamate's the most common neurotransmitter in your brain? Do you know people who say that MSG is bad for you? Are wrong? Oh, but I always get a headache. Oh, I'm sure you get a headache. It wasn't caused by the MSG. People used to talk about, quote, Chinese restaurant syndrome. You know what causes that? Racism. That's what causes that. Because when you eat tomatoes, they're full of MSG. When you eat cheese, it's full of MSG. Why do you think ketchup's a really popular condiment? It's basically a bunch of umami in a bottle. It's a flavor we like. Why do you think fish sauce? Which, on its own, is like a little intense. Don't ever spill a bottle of fish sauce. But you put it in something, and it's like, oh, something was missing. Or if you just have that MSG. I just have a bag of MSG. It's like having salt. Whenever I'm cooking something, and I'm like, this just needs a little, I know what it needs. Oh, it tastes amazing now. <laughs> MSG is actually, the lethal dose for MSG is lower than the lethal dose uh, table salt. Just, it's, it's literally the case that, quote, Chinese restaurant syndrome is caused by racism. That's all it is. It's got nothing to do with MSG. 
You ever read a Dorito? It basically is MSG. <laughs> so these are all things that are important to either avoid or get. And yeah, wonder why snacks are so tasty. MSG, salt, sweet. We also might have uh, taste receptors for carbs. It's possible. That's you see people say that. Snacks are tasty because back in, you know, up geez, frankly, 500 years ago, let's just go even 500 years ago. Very few people could afford it. Sugar and salt and all these kind of things. After World War II, suddenly you can get sugar in like industrial quantities. Start eating sugar. It's hard to stop. Which explains, you know, obesity epidemics in the West. Like when you think about it, fat and sugar, like icing for a cake is nature's perfect food. Not quite. Trying to do this quickly. So a lot of times, perceptual systems drive evolution. So when we talk about the moths and the bats that I did the other day, the moths have evolved a hearing system which basically detects bats. It does nothing else. So the, the bat's sound has driven the moth's perceptual systems development, evolutionary. There are guppies, you know, guppies, little fish. Well, they actually are the thing that grow, that lives in the wild too. And guppies are sort of an, usually are orangey red color. In fact, uh, in fact, female guppies prefer red. Yeah, prefer red males to, to orange males. You say, well, then why are there orange guppies? Because there are prawns that live in the lakes in South America where the guppies live. And guess what color the prawns see better than any other color? Red. So we get orange guppies to avoid getting eaten. Even though if the females saw a red guppy, they'd be like, well, I'm going to go mate with that guy. I just got eaten by a prawn. <laughs> so evolution, the selection here being done is by other species, other species is, are doing the selection in this case because of their perceptual systems. So it's basically an arms race. And I think it, the modularity stuff is going to take me 10 minutes probably. So I think we'll stop here. Uh, we'll pick this up and then we'll also do consciousness next time. And on that note, Thank you, everybody. So I'm sure maybe I'm wrong, but it's already
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to... Uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.